Hello, you're listening to Film Graves from the band Phil Graves. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. Today we're going to be talking about a really, really sick and really, really long film. Yeah, and a very short book on which it's based. What's it called, Emmett? It's called Satan Tango, made between 1992 and 1994. 1994 was a big year for film. What have we got? We were looking earlier and it's just outrageous. <laughs> I started writing a list and I ran out of space. All these like supposedly <laughs> classic canonical films. The Shawshank Redemption, Lion King, Forrest Gump, Leon the Professional. Clerks. Speed. Pulp Fiction. Speed is the second best film that came out in 1994. These are all Don't big know, have like... You, have you seen Stargate? No. <laughs> I haven't seen Tammy and the T-Rex really. either, but I want to watch that. Edward. Oh yeah, I like that film. Yeah. Oh, Dumb and Dumber. Good if black and white. It was the year of Jim Carrey's prophesized <laughs> three big hitters in one year, thanks to the fortune teller. Yeah, The Mask and Ace Ventura being the other of this triptych of Renaissance masterpieces. The film we're talking about is actually a triptych, but it was missing from this uh, IMDb list of the biggest films in 1994, <laughs> yeah. conspicuous by its absence. It was... Um, you know, very conspicuous on the, you know, by duration. Yeah, if you, <laughs> sort, sort by runtime. <laughs> Believe it to be 419 minutes. Some sort of epic stoner joke from Bellatar. It's listed as 450 minutes elsewhere. I'm not sure where these other... That might incorporate the interval, potentially. There are two intervals in a lot of the presentations of it. And it's on three discs. Yeah, I imagine it might just be on one Blu-ray, though, for the increased memory capacity. So you can watch it as Tara intended, just straight one sitting. Yeah. Sam, I'm really, really happy you watched it. I know it's a hard sell, but oh, I've been going on about it for a while. You read the book and you watched it. Yeah, I really did my homework, yeah. <laughs> I took my medicine and, um, well, I read the book first and I feel like that really did influence the way I viewed it, mm -hmm. specifically as an adaptation rather than as a... I guess an Ocho film, which is also what it is. For sure. We watched it together the other day. Yeah, I travelled to yours. I got there before midday. It was a real Herculean shit. Or Sisyphean. Fantastic. It took us, yeah, I mean... It was the whole day. I went to see the uh, melancholy post-rock band Caroline that evening, which was very appropriate vibes. Yeah, I just went home and like sort of... Wallowed. <sighs> yeah. What was more depressing, watching the film or reading the book? Yeah, it's an interesting question, actually, because I found the end of the book to strike a very different note to the film. The film has an unremittingly miserable tone. There's no turn towards anything at the end. I feel like there's a, maybe a, a hint of a moment of transformation or... Yeah, it's the, because the book has the sort of Finnegan's Wake element to it, whereas the film, maybe you could say, is more of a snake eating its own tail something like that yeah i mean it's just such a nietzschean thing I mean, the book certainly is the the idea of you know the infinity loop i guess long appropriated by people like having that tattooed on them right sure. i think that's the thing you saw the restoration in cinema didn't you in cinema i saw it at the lincoln center in new york in like november time which i think was just when it was first coming out yeah there's still a run of it in america what what was it like man in the cinema yeah, i mean it was a very busy screening it was, they had daily screenings there for like two weeks I went on like a Tuesday afternoon starting at, I think, 2 p.m., but still very busy, not quite full. Wanted to go twice. It was such an amazing experience actually seeing it on the cinema screen. I mean, I'd seen it at home a couple of times and hadn't really left my mind at any point because it's such a monumental thing. Yeah, being in the room, being part of the sort of... Good energy. Yeah, <laughs> better than the energy of the community in the film, for sure. Had a lot of interesting conversations, actually. You're going through it together. Yeah, I mean, it's a fucking journey, man. There are a few screenings in the UK. The Deptford Cinema are doing a series of Bellatar films, aren't they? Yeah, they're doing a whole retrospective. Not a whole retrospective, but they are showing. Autumn Almanac on the 13th of February. Damnation on the 24th. Workmeister Harmonies on the 12th. I tried to go see Workmeister Harmonies at the Deptford Cinema last year, but it was sold out on a Saturday night. People of London, you're all right. <laughs> Satan Tango, they got it, yep, yeah, on the 21st of March. 1pm start. And they're showing the Turin Horse on the 30th. They're not showing The Man from London, which was a great move. Very disappointing film. At the Curzon, on their screen, The Restoration. The main difference from my eyes, I think, reading the book, was that the translation is different. The subtitles, 
and the intertitles. Oh. Yeah, the intertitles are probably the main difference. I, I, I found the main, the translation of the main uh, dialogue pretty true to the text. But sure, but Shirt says his translate, I don't think he worked on the translation for the subtitles for the original theatrical run, but I think the new edition, the text corresponds more faithfully to George Shirtes's adaptation. It was an amazing cinematic experience. At the Curzon Soho on Saturday the 11th of April and at the Curzon Bloomsbury on Monday, Bank Holiday Monday the 13th of April, Easter Monday. Mm. What a great way to celebrate Easter weekend. Yeah, sadly, I don't think I'm going to... Oh, I think I'm going to be in Poland, but I think I'm going to try and recreate some of the scenes in these like... <laughs> Oh man, should we uh, should we but get into it? Those colors on screenings are 11 a.m. start. Yeah, let's get into it. Let's talk about the novel. Laszlo Krajna Hawkeye, Hungarian novelist who started writing in like the late 80s. Yeah, he Satan Tango was his first book, yeah. his first novel, yeah. and his first effort of prose or whatever. As you observed, Sam, it was written when he was about the age that we are now. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. But he won the International Booker Prize, which is for like an author, not for a book. In I think 2012, and subsequently hit, a lot of his novels were translated into English all in one go by George Shertes. There's another translation he's work he's done his more recent work I think. The world goes on has multiple translators, which kind of makes sense because it's got sort of different voices in the book. But a lot of his books are available now. I'd really recommend checking him out. I mean, Satan Tango, the novel came out in Hungary. He started writing it in the late 70s. Published it in. Um, 85 pretty subversive stuff as we'll get into like post thor but still within the ussr well, it was like a yeah like a communist state of hungary we'll as get, opposed we'll to the well, far right but... state that it is now yeah came out in the, in 85 in hungary it was a big hit belatar made his adaptation belatar and agnes hranitsky co-author she's credited as on the back of this for the turin horse they did direct it together started making it in 92 it came out in 94 92 was the year that damnation came out which was the first film he made with this sort of like big shift into sculpting in time and like real like mm. auteurist art cinema as opposed to the social realism of autumn almanac which i haven't seen but i just picked up on dvd this morning nice i wasn't sure whether it was a good idea to read the book first because it's obviously such a long film that the unfolding of it, I wasn't sure if I'd spoil it for myself, but... I think it is true, though, that you could read... It would take you less time to read the novel cumulatively than it takes to watch the film. Is that fair to say? Yeah. There are two parts of the book. There are 12 chapters from 1 from one to 6 and then from 6 to 1. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's experimental. Well, that's crazy. It's, yeah, well, yeah, what? <laughs> you know, it is experimental literature. The prose is experimental. On your recommendation, I read the second half. I'd only like sort of read it on the tube or whatever <laughs> before that point, and then I read the second half in one sitting over like a few hours or whatever. I think it makes sense to do right because it's such a cascading narrative. That second half is like the third act of the film, basically. The last three hours, <laughs> two and a half maybe. I don't know. I think the waiting is pretty even across the distance. But the change in pacing between the first half and the second half is like very yeah, normal. it's serious yeah. But it's not really about the plot. When I was thinking about like how to deal with describing the story, it almost becomes sort of irrelevant because it's way more about the mood yeah, and the sense it. of space. The film is very closely related to the, the text. Like there's in terms of the plot and the characters and the structure, there's like real fidelity. And the influences of the book are really clear in terms of, you know, like Kafka. I read this quote. I read this quote from Krasnoyarsky being like, "When I'm not reading Kafka, I'm thinking about Kafka. When I'm, th- when I'm not thinking about Kafka, I miss thinking about him." Like it's so, and it's really about that. Like it's like the castle or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about like bureaucracy and stasis and the lack of agency in totalitarian regimes. But it's not a political novel, really. It's like a political fable, like a parable. Yeah, I mean, we were discussing earlier the extent to which it was like a social thing or you were saying you didn't think it... I, I was saying I thought it was like social realism, but because it's so... It's like hard to be a god or something. It's like so peak that like it seems 
unreal. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it is. It's just like extreme social realism. I mean, his his filmmaking is, I guess, known as like slow <laughs> slow cinema. Yeah, it's extremely stylized. Like, it's like stylized. Extremely contemplative. Like, there's so much of it is like watching someone walk down a road. If that. <laughs> yeah. But it's about like what that achieves through in terms of mood and yeah experience Should, well, which is why it's extreme it. we haven't described anything about the uh, story so it's set in a sort of ex commune farm sort of hamlet yeah at the beginning of the story there some of the characters have like gone to sell the the cattle that most of them have invested in as a way of sort of escaping their forsaken <laughs> existence in this like barren estate where they're all trapped together <laughs> you better believe it i guess the main crux of the action is that in the first half they hear that someone they thought was dead who they're all <laughs> who sort of holds them all in thrall he's the most charismatic and like interesting person there i guess or whatever like yeah. so, certain characters are fascinated by him but even the ones who hate him are still like more interested in what he has to say than anyone It's just else. like a force, as opposed to like being like, just stuck. <laughs> this is Irimi Ash, who is uh, yeah, on his way back to town. Played by... Um, Mihaly V. Yeah, who's a composer and, you know... Yeah, he's in a he band. Did, he, he's done all the music for these Bellatar films. Very atmospheric, like, oppressive. In this, I was really surprised by the music, though, actually, because mm. it's this weird, like... Beirut style, like, <laughs> like dark synth, like jaunty, ironic. I wasn't expecting it. There's not that much music in the film. No, I guess it sort of punctuates scenes and acts as like a, you know, an editing device. Yeah, like, yeah. To like kitschy is the wrong word. Like... It's like maudlin or something like that. You know, it's like it has very few instruments, but it's like grandiose, operatic or not operatic shit. It sort of is though, man, because the progression sort sort like sounds like Beethoven or something, right? Right. right. But it's like warbling it's and played like on a broken resolves in like thing. a really like <laughs> after like a couple of chords and there's no melody. Mm. <laughs> but let's get back to sorry, just the bare bones of the story. Like the story is so irrelevant, but I feel like it's all about them anticipating this arrival and then the effects of it. They're like stuck and this guy comes back like making a promise all their lives are in stasis as you say they're waiting for like some sort of epic life-changing moment yeah. the first half of the novel and the film is extremely miserable you're either in the bar with all these like hopeless characters who all like hate each other all like sipping palinka like on yeah. tap and they just it's start. raining the whole time yeah. well it's the first day of rain right so it destroys the roads that's how the book starts but they're all in this community there's about 14 or 15 people, a few families, a few buildings, a few houses. Most of them are in the bar. There's only a small band of kids that come from one family. The rest of it is just like Mr. and Mrs. Archetypes, the doctor, the the landlord, the headmaster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These like generic types. And I guess it's meant to be sort of universal. Like they're not really elaborated on as characters. I guess they have characteristics. Like some are like evangelical, some are just like nihilistic nihilist like drums, yeah, yeah yeah and it's about the way these characters like i guess it's about the community they live in or lack thereof yeah i mean it's set there aren't many locations in it but it's like the elec crossing wow. wenkheim castle yeah. or like the manor or or whatever these are all places like where lajna krasna the author who like worked on the script of the film as well grew up like he's literally just like imagining scenarios like i read um one thing he said that the character of arimiash the name as well is taken from when he was younger he like you know like a journeyman period of like working on a farm or whatever and like this guy came to castrate the chickens he said oh, and he was called arimiash and he was called arimiash and when all the farmers heard that he was coming they were all shook and the sense of waiting and the sense of fear and dread and anticipation and being enthralled as well was what inspired that's this. crazy i had no idea yeah, yeah. that's well, mad. it's mad isn't it and that that the sense of like waiting and stasis is like so central to this in terms of the cinematography it's achieved in like a crazy way through stunning long takes longest average shot length of any film i believe 
which is a great stat. Nice one, Baylor. But where Krasna Hawkeye's prose unfolds in like really long sentences, Bellatar uses like really long takes. Um, which are a lot less dense with stuff. It's not like there's like a crazy amount of stuff going on, but there's like, say if there's one more thing going on. In the most elaborate sequence, like the dance sequence, there's about five or six different things going on, mm. but it's the balance. And yeah, the way your mind works when you're, especially on a cinema screen, mm. if you're spending that much time, you're spending that much time watching one thing happen. Your imagination becomes destroyed you sort of experience the like claustrophobia and sort of brutal nihilism that the characters have been like living under for an indefinite amount of time yeah it's an unfolding an unraveling or comes undone You're still listening to Film Grace, The Examination of Satan Tango. I think one of the important contexts for understanding it as a film or as a story, I guess, the logic of the characters is the history of collectivization in communist states mm -hmm. in the 20th century. These these characters are all, their destinies are all sort of bound, bound to each other. I guess one, one interesting thing in the text is the way that there are a few characters who are separated from this, like the guy that plays the accordion in the bar scene mm -hmm. is known as like the farmer, right? Rather than like one of their like We're sort all of... farmers here or whatever. Yeah, so I don't know whether that's... Same with the coachman who yeah, gets really insanely drunk. I don't know whether that's to suggest that he's like sort of operating outside of that sort of collectivist framework because he stays behind when they um, embark on this novel collectivist like utopian yeah. yeah venture it's definitely a venture a capitalist venture <laughs> but i guess that's all tangential i just feel like that's a really important context also the stuff about secret police and surveillance which is again like a central historical context which was at the forefront of krasnokar's mind when he would have been writing as is the story for, for yeah. bellatar as well and and all the, all those who produced it you know lived in the same regime there's two sequences in the film and two chapters in the book that are explicitly concerned with this and they emerge to almost be sort of the main plot of the film. Irimi Ash and Petrina, before they return to the town, um, are called into a meeting with the sort of local... Constable, like the police, yeah. like chief or whatever. Yeah. It's actually like really farcical scene. It's funny to see them in this sort of palatial building. I guess just because they look ludicrous, like... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Petrina has a very funny hat. Well, they both have funny hats. The constable tells them, like, oh, you haven't been what you like. You haven't been doing shit. Like, you, you need to work for the state. It's not really revealed in the film, in the dialogue of the film so much. But in the book, it's made explicit that they're being told they need to basically report, observe on all the people who live on the... Okay, I mean, it's just about the pervasiveness of, um, like, secret police. Like, the idea that everyone has a file kept on them. The idea that everyone should... You know, and everyone—it's a participatory thing. This is the social environment where everyone participates in this documenting mm. f for the state of movements, activities, <laughs> like even when you know. these people are doing nothing. You know? yeah, 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 and I guess that's you know one of the main points. All agency or action or promise of action in this story is peripheral. I guess this, as yeah, well yeah, as yeah. the uh, stuff about bureaucracy, is why it's so Kafka, like clearly Kafkaesque. In that it's unfinished, even though in and of itself it has a self-contained structure, like symmetrical structure. It's an episode right. in in a no in a broader nothingness. <laughs> you know, it's like but it is also the fact that the recording comes to be a central part of the story or the narrative itself um one character i don't think we've really spoke about is the doctor really reminded me in the film of orson wells <laughs> or like an old orson wells like very like blustered like blundering like yeah yeah pissed sits at home alone looking out his window drinking smoking cigarettes the thing that stops him just sitting in his room looking out the window spying on his neighbors 
is the fact that he has drunk his last drop. But he emerges to almost be the main character of the text. Absolutely. He's the one who's actually keeping a file on all the characters, including himself. Yeah. And constructing in a textual way the world around him, I guess for um, implicitly nefarious purposes, but also, you know, this is what the story is. As a purpose, as a motivation. One of the most intriguing characters. I guess this is a point that applies to lots of things throughout this, but one of the things that, having read the book just before I watched the film, the lack of sort of interiority in the film sort of shifts the focus from some characters to others and you lose a lot of the sort of they convey they they make up for this through the cinematography and through like the evocation of mood through the image right because instead of instead of reading their thoughts the whole time you're actually just going around their room really really slowly with these yeah, like, and, ridiculously you know, slow zooms and your mind i guess is kind of doing the work of imagining you're suffused with their mentality but a lot of the dynamics and you know, Petrina, for example, Urumi Ash's companion, is basically not really a character in the film. He's sort of like a semi-comedic foil to Urumi Ash. It's kind of perfect, though, I feel. Yeah, but, he, in, I mean... His... He's a non-perspectival character. There's no chapters in the book. Like, the, it becomes pretty clear, I think, with the SD chapter and with the Doctor chapter, that you're just with them. That's what's going to go on until the next cut, until the next chapter sequence. I guess the thing everyone knows about Bellator's style is that it's founded in extremely long takes. The most famous sort of Bellator influence in the West is probably films by Gus Van Sant, like Jerry and Elephant, which are likened way more to video games in terms of traveling when the camera is just going really slowly down these corridors or outdoors in the case of Jerry, where the elements are way more exposed. Some of my favorite shots in Satan Tango are these kind of potentially endless shots, caught the cameras in a car, going across this incredibly barren landscape with like a few trees you know you see the tree like enters the frame it exits the frame and then it's so crazy dude at times it seems like it's static even though it's like warbling <laughs> yeah there's wind in the frame even if it's not blowing anything and then like a, you know you realize there's like movement and it's just all it's all part of like this sense of desolation <laughs> It's radical, but it's not still. The camera is like often moving, I think, which is pretty important. I mean, in those examples, it's literally moving. But yeah, I mean, it's pretty kinetic. But compared to other like famous slow cinema artists like, I don't know, Sai Ming Lang or a pitch pong, Weiris Ethical, who is one of the artists, along with Peter Strickland, who put Satan Tango in his BFI Sight and Sound poll, top 10. Nice one, guys. Their camera is way more still, whereas I think Bellatar's conception of slow cinema with a moving camera. I guess it's that Tarkovsky influence, you know, where he's panning along the mud and the grass and stuff like that. You still feel the weight of perspective, though. Yeah. Like, um, in the Doctor scene, the first Doctor scene, he's, you know, like a fat dude, like an old fat alcoholic, and he's pretty immobile, and he's, like, breathes really heavily, and, you know, as you said, he's just sitting there... Watching out the window through his binoculars, right up. If that if that scene of him leaving his house was any less than forty minutes long, it would have been like <laughs> just <laughs> ridiculous, yeah. unbelievable. You yeah, know. Um, it's it's an appropriate length. He's got to walk across the the farm to go to get some cigarettes. This is how you get into the psychology. I mean, what's lost from like the descriptiveness of the text and the mentalities there is picked up through just this like. Oh, the weight of existence. Yeah, it's like a void, right? It's like the, the space is there. The time in which these people are thinking about their lives and having these incredibly like grandiose, like spiraling, like existential thoughts. But it's just silence and like you know barren black and white cinematography. One thing that I'm looking forward to being replaced compared to the DVD copy we're watching is yeah. the uh, the cigarette burns on the last ten seconds of every reel. Oh, yeah, because otherwise you just wouldn't know it was ending. Well, exactly. You shouldn't know how when the edit is coming. You should get into it. And I think in this film specifically, having those... They're for the projectionist, right? Those little holes mm. in the top right corner just to indicate when you need to change the reel. Daddy Long Legs has a scene about this. Those cigarette burns was like, oh, okay, so something else is going to happen now. It's it like, sort of oh, jolts you out of the reverie. Well, absolutely, because it could go on, you know, with this new Blu-ray, the new restoration. No cigarette burns. That's probably one of the most significant things about the restoration actually i can't wait to see i can't wait to see it but i mean the grain of the i mean it's a it's a 35 millimeter black and white film you know it still has grain yeah but 
It doesn't look crisp. Texture is so important with that doctor sequence specifically because that is, I think it's in two takes or something like that, or it's made to, maybe they fake it like rope 1917 or something. There are a few fun um, camera tricks in that scene. It starts with binoculars where he's just like, interrogating the landscape outside his window for about five minutes and then you realize he's watching the opening scene of the film and it's just <laughs> yeah. happening again but from a different perspective yeah. uh, you were saying about the shape of the binoculars i don't know the iconography of the infinity loop is sort of incorporated through the binoculars i don't know it seems like an extremely crass point but i don't know it's a bit on the nose but it's definitely there it's a nice way to do it i mean in the book they've got like the flies on the wall making the infinity symbol yeah. like but which I guess Bellatar couldn't get the performing flyers to do. <laughs> I love the flies in it, man. Yeah. They're, there they're is the classic fly on the tracking shot against the uh, landscape. When just, oh, there's a fly on the lens. Like, oh, we're not going to redo the shot. They're a bunch, man, and it's great. It's great. You know, it just gives a even deeper sensory. They're part of the ensemble cast, you know. Same with the horses and the cows. Yeah, I mean, the opening shot of this film is sensational. It's a sort of prologue of just the cows, the cattle that they're in, the characters are invested in, slowly making their way through town. It's a tracking shot that like goes past all these desolate buildings. From one side of the town to the other. Yeah. You're just slowly watching them make their way. Some of them try to fart, like some of them go off on their ones for a bit and then like rejoin yeah. the community. An amazing way to tell the story of Satan Tango. This isn't in the book. Yeah, to sort of caricature the scenario as well and immediately instill that sense that is like the essential aspect of the film, that mood of yeah. like, oh. And you're you're opening this film with a formerly radical, you know, if you're sitting down at a festival, and you're like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to watch. Like maybe you haven't seen Damnation if you're in 1994. Yeah, sure. The first 10 minutes you're watching just some cows like. And you're thinking, fucking hell, it was this or Forrest Gump and I've really shat the bed here. <laughs> <laughs> Should have gone to the clerk's Q&A. <laughs> Should have done the Natural Born Killers. Pop fiction double built but it's an astonishing opening gambit it also immediately drew to mind a film that i'd watched very recently uh the cow the um mm. 1969 iranian film fuck i can't remember the guy's name but it was extremely dope actually i think it's just gone off movie now unfortunately but you can find it online and that similarly is set in like a quite isolated sort of a state, like a little settlement. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, you know, choose your synonym. And um, it's also about like a guy who's um, like invested in like some livestock that he really loves as well. And like, it goes like very tonally different, but also I feel like an interesting counterpoint to it. Mm -hmm. It has, that's like an extremely sad film actually. And very, very much like, a sort of social realist thing with some mystical elements, which Satan Tango has <laughs> sort of as well. Slightly more subdued in the film than in the text, actually. But it's true in the book, there are definite moments of like transcendence and like miracles, whereas they are way more like elemental and hallucinatory, possibly in the film. Yeah, in Maybe the film, it's can't. like it's not really a thing. Yeah, but that's almost like you know the money tree is like the, the fake miracles are like embedded in the text from the start the bells from the very start and there's no you know magical realism again is just a term that applies but it's it does yeah i mean i feel like this film sort of transcends categorization like that slow cinema i feel like is disingenuous to call it that's why i'd say social realism is also like disingenuous you know yeah, yeah i understand uh, but to describe it as under any sort of philosophical banner nietzschean existentialist yeah i mean i you know it's like nausea without a protagonist or something but or kafka all these comparisons seem superficial because it really is its own extremely impressive evocation of like meaning and mood and Absolutely. sense and senselessness and i think for being one of the most famous long films and the longest famous film mm. it occupies that like necessarily because the act of adaptation of turning this like crushingly dull in like it's poetic but it's dull in that it's meant to feel dull and like stupefying and the way to make a stupefying film is you make it seven hours you make it really slow yeah and that means also you can have 20 minute sequences shot in a bar where people are just dancing in a circle playing to a 30 second accordion loop 
it's a marriage story, guys, you know, form and content. Let's talk about that then. Yeah, I mean, it's an insane <laughs> scene. It's an insane scene. <laughs> this is the, the centerpiece. It comes about three hours and 28 minutes. <laughs> it is Satan's tango. Uh, yeah. But then the tango is afterwards. Yeah, that's true. It's not the actual tango. I don't know what kind of tune this is. Played on the broken accordion with the Some bum sort notes. Of mazurka or something. I don't, I don't even know, but like, it's mad, yeah. Basically, all the characters have been waiting in this pub, sort of one social space that they have, where obviously all their bad habits are reinforced. Since the cultural centre closed down years ago or whatever. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Isn't yeah. even made reference to in the film. Yeah, yeah, it's so tragic. They're waiting, 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 getting more and more pissed, and then it eventually just degenerates into this like sort of bawdy... Everyone's trying to dance with like... Mrs. Schmidt, Schmidt. <laughs> yeah, the like most lusty one, you know, and it's just a crazy exposition and a crazy presentation of what's happening, you know, it just plays out. And also it's shot in an insane way. This is two scenes with a scene in between, yeah. right? And then, the, but these two scenes start and end in the same place, right? Over one of the person's shoulders from the same angle. Yeah, the same camera track, like in reverse, it like pulls out, yeah. right, zooms in. And I, I just loved it. Apparently they were actually drunk when they filmed it. Yeah, I mean, there's some pretty, like, mad behaviour going on. Like, I, I learned the song on accordion. You'll hear it on <laughs> and, this episode. Uh, and, um, you know, the accordion is, like, a heavy, awkward instrument. And this character is just stumbling around playing it for, like, 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and they're all dancing around. They must have been exhausted. The like, camera's dancing with them. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> The first scene of Workmeister Harmony's Bellatar's subsequent film. It's another. It's a bar sequence, but it's way more balletic and like cosmic and like formal, whereas this is just totally chaotic. It's got, you know, seven or eight characters. Just like falling, falling around. Yeah, he got. Schmidt balancing bread on his head. Just so many like little distillations of characterization encapsulated in this like. Extremely long take, you know. Got it. We didn't even say this is warmed up to by Coachman Kellerman just saying the same thing over and over again for about 40 minutes about how he was plodding and plodding and plodding along. Yeah, like this fabricated story. He brings the news of um, them, of Irumiash and Petrina returning, and he's presenting this, like, increasingly fantastical interpretation of it where he was warmly embraced by them and, you know drinks were on them and stuff even though you've seen it and it's just yeah yeah you've seen it just like iris out to like his face like grinning at the end of that bar scene with irimiash where he's wild out and everyone and then you see him struggling to tell the story much like we're struggling to tell the story of satan tango yeah i mean right because now. the story is not instrumental no, i feel like course. it should always return to this that the story is secondary to the evocation of mood place and i guess psychological i think the psychological thing is really important when talking about the film specifically because it really does destroy your perception of what a film can be and as a result it destroys your perception of like what's going to happen in the film which ends up being not much for sure i mean that's the sort of the philosophical thesis of the film or the worldview of it i mean you at one point you meet like an arm there are promises of basically violent upheaval you meet a character an arms dealer called mr bang bang and um nothing gets blown up nothing gets blown up spoiler alert and again i think this is like the kafka influence of just like you know it turns back on itself Between these two mad bar scenes, um, with I guess the main like sort of cabal of characters waiting for the return of Irimiash, is probably the most. It's certainly the most horrible scene in the film, the most distressing scene in the film. I'd say it's like the emotional center of the film, in opposition to the sort of hollow center that is the dance sequence. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And in terms of it, how it relates to other scenes. I mean, all the scenes sort of interlock, right? There's a lot of overlap. As you said, like when the doctor, the doctor's first scene is basically a recap from another, from another perspective of the first scene. All the scenes pretty much take place at the same time. 
on the same sort of temporal plane in the first half. Yeah. yeah. And to so, a lesser extent. In the, they also, yeah. So this scene concerns one of the few children who live on the estate. Yeah, all the all the children on the estate are the children of Mrs. Horgos, whose husband commits suicide before the film, and she has one son and three daughters. Two of them are prostitutes who live in the barn, who become prostitutes without any clients. She has a son who is a really sort of nefarious character and also becomes sort of like Irimi Ash's like apprentice <laughs> slash sort of like servant. There's a massive generation gap. Every other character is like really old, like late Yeah, and 50s. it's a barren a barren landscape, you know. There there are no other like generations There's to no speak future. of. Yeah, exactly. So SD is, I don't know, I guess ev- everyone calls her like a retard mm-hmm. and like she's sort of maligned. the Red Scare podcast, Sam. No. <laughs> no, but it's true. And she's like maligned and marginalized and abused and it's really dread. And the crux of this chapter is like she basically is really bullied all the time and she sort of takes that out on a cat and then... It's a difficult sequence. It's what a lot of people remember most about the Satan Tango viewing experience, I think. Probably what makes it, apart from the length, like the thing that makes it the most notorious. Supposedly, from an animal rights perspective, it was all above board. Like, Yeah, they apparently had a vet on set and they, you know, they do represent a fight between her and the cat. Yeah. And apparently they, like, train the cat to, like, you know, through repetition, it's like a game to like roll around or whatever. It is so profoundly sad I, for that. Like the, I don't know. you know, the the most pathetic like character in the whole place, like taking her anger out on like the only thing that's like weaker than her or whatever. You know, and yeah, like, of course, a man. manifestation of that sort of like awful power dynamic, like in the most pitiful way. Yeah, I mean, it's an extremely distressing portrait. For most of this, and it's in the style of the whole film, you know, it's in, like, excruciatingly long takes. Yeah, exactly. There's often just, like, yeah. one light source. It, that fight sequence takes place in, like, a sort of, like, an attic or, like... Yeah, a loft. Yeah. A loft, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like... Where there's, like, one way in and there's, like, you know... She's, like, looking out, like the doctor, like, looking out on the rest of the town. And then you can barely see what's going on. But obviously you can in the cinema very clearly. Which is why I would suggest going to see the shit in the cinema. Mm. Painful. Her facial expression. I mean, there's like she's on the cover of the DVD. Yeah, and there is also at least fifteen minutes of her like walking down the road with the camera following her. I'd I'd say a uh, milkman by Anna Burns. I believe is somewhat Satan Tango inspired with a central motif. A book really worth reading. Check is it that out. the Irish novel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Set during the troubles. Um, feels a lot like Satan Tango in certain sequences. But yeah, this SD sequence is really something else. I mean, you can't unsee it. it. Makes me want to cry just thinking about it. Yeah, when we were watching it, you were like, uh, "I think I'm gonna, you know, <laughs> I might go and have a shower or you know, <laughs> like <laughs> brew some coffee." I've seen it like four <laughs> times, man. Yeah. Like, in the cinema it was on another level but it is you can't it's unforgettable like even though the rest of Satan Tango is so not muted it's obviously incredibly expressive but the like dramatic shift to like this it's a huge perspectival shift because you know everything else has been from the sort of like oh heavy ancient perspective of like the the older generation and then this is suddenly like a little girl's perspective who's like really right at the bottom of the hierarchy but you want to talk about like innocence or like naivety or whatever and it's like it doesn't even nah. doesn't even relate like no nah, because she's just like suffused in this like extremely iniquitous and dissolute environment <laughs> it's like extremely horrible um, and but it's, I mean, you're only with her you know as a yeah as a result of the nature of the way that Bellatar shoots this stuff it's you and her, and occasionally with her brother, or the money tree. Yeah, again, this is just horrible. Uh, that in itself is like a a little parable, you know, 
like a little a little fable the the whole episode has that sort of feel of like a fable with like you know a real grim teleology it's really depressing but central to the emotional thrust of the film i exactly, think yeah even through negation because the next scene when Irumiash returns yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. sd is dead on the table right there's been like a time jump we don't have the satisfaction of seeing the what the the discovery they've been waiting for yeah. you know yeah right that moment is <laughs> almost narratively unimportant yeah. right he returns and the body is foregrounded and in a way that it's not in the text <clears throat> it's just... yeah maybe it's implicit because it's basically the next scene is the first scene in the second act where it picks up, sort of. And it starts with, I mean, for me, one of the great, <laughs> one of the greatest film monologues I've ever seen. Of course. Like, maybe 15 minutes of unbroken proselytizing. Demagoguery at... Yeah. You know, on it's a, crazy. On the micro scale. It's insane. And this, again, is like the guy that Mihaly Vig, the guy that wrote the music for the film. and Yeah. The guy who's introduced in the second scene, like, well, walking down the road with the trash. Yeah. <laughs> and then getting berated by the chief of police as being, like, a total fraud and, like, a loser. Yeah. Everyone sort of considers them, like, rogues. Yeah. They are rogues. But you've got the whole town putting all their money at the feet of the dead girl, like... Really profound sort of imagery. And, like, really harrowing and, you know, I guess a lot of the film isn't that bait. Like, so much of it is just, like, observational. So then when something that, like, symbolic happens, it's <laughs> really quite crushing and, like, emphatic. Absolutely. We won't reveal everything that happened over the course of the second half of Satan Tango. But as we say, the plot is relevant, doesn't really matter. Yeah, I feel bad, like... Doing the fucking exegesis of that that episode, but I feel like it's it's worth bearing witness to, just because of as an image, how like stark and powerful it is, yeah. and also as part of the story, precipitating you know the the middle of the story, the point when you start rolling down the hill before you start <laughs> right right start pushing your way back up. Ash's breathtaking speech is telling in no uncertain terms how morally corrupt the whole place is and how the only thing they can do is like start anew and form a new sort of like commune farming venture. Yeah, when you first started talk talking to me about Satan Tango and I was like, what's it about? And you said, uh, oh, it's sort of about a guy that tries to start a commune and I was like yeah it sounds sick <laughs> <laughs> and I mean that sort of is the crux of it he displaces them because after four hours of it you know that the place they are is like absolutely cursed like deeply forsaken <laughs> yeah yeah for sure they need to get out of there yeah. even though the people who stay are like extremely pissed off about the but I guess the point maybe also is that like, the place that they're promised is also you know, it's not a utopia. I guess it's imagined, maybe. But what is it? It's like some von Waldheim Manor or something like that. You know. Yeah, it's got like the a grand name. Yeah, but the sequence where they're like, in the book, where they're all like destroying their homes and like hacking up all their furniture and stuff like that is like probably the most like contained moment of like joy. Like expressiveness in the book. Yeah, that's outrageous, isn't it? I lo <laughs> oh my god, I love that bit in the book, though, man. Uh, when I was re okay, it, it does bear on the viewing experience. And again, like as I said at the beginning, I'm glad I read it before I watched it because I feel like it sort of dictated the way I or affected the way I watched it. Of course, 
I loved reading it. I had no idea what to expect of the novel or something like this, having watched the film. And then, yeah, it's an awesome text, you know. <laughs> like, But the second half is so different and the energy is so different. And this is one of the first scenes that encapsulates that a sort of shift in mentality even if it is like a false dawn <laughs> um, and like their joy as you alluded to is extremely nihilistic <laughs> like it's such a grim image but really fascinating and the not, way they not really in the film the way it's represented in the film is different yeah and there are a few differences in this bit and i feel like the film really yeah the film really stripped back on some of the uh mysticism or yeah. the more surreal elements because sure. there's a dream sequence, which is really cool. I was just going to say, in the text, it's like the most experimental prose. Yeah, I guess like sort of extremely Joycean, like disintegrating. Yes, exactly. Stylized. With um, like unbelievable sort of visions and stuff like that. But it's represented in Extremely the perspectival and like it goes through each character describing their sort of, I guess, like desires in that like moment where they're all together in this new venture <laughs> but it's also yeah it's like them having walked for like 20 miles and being extremely yeah. exhausted again uh, we basically see that play out in real time <laughs> oh, yeah exactly and then yeah they're going to sleep and they're all having like nightmares mm. it is not represented through like i mean the things they see no there's a narration and and then the camera does a crazy loop around it's a circle as they're all they must have all been lying like a clock or like the hands <laughs> yeah. on the clock and it does a crazy loop which is also mirrored in the way it goes around them all having passed out in the bar mm. yeah it's just all these little and synchronicities the in the, you know the office when they're compiling the records you know yeah, yeah of course oh that's uh just quickly but uh before we get on to that then just quickly in terms of not representing that like surreal element, it did strip back the sort of mysticism of the text. And there's a point where Irumiash and Petrina and the Horgos kid, who's sort of in their thrall, mm -hmm. they go to where Esti killed herself. And like, there, there is like, you know, like a crazy miracle, miracle levitation. Sort of, yeah. Like Twin Peaks, the return. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Yeah. And that's not in the film. So I, it's interesting how... No, the way they do it in the film is mad. But we won't even talk about it because I don't know how they did it. I don't understand it, but it's cool to watch. It's worth sitting six, six and a half hours into the film just to see that. Yeah. I don't know how they did it. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, I guess this like relates to the fact that it, like, it does otherwise have a sort of social realist yeah. or like verite sense. I guess this is why I was disappointed that like it didn't embrace those like those very few um, sort of explosions of surrealist imagery sure. that, that we... are in it. We're going to talk about the Ulysses on film on the on this podcast at some point in the in the future yeah. with Albert, and that's an interesting thing with point of comparison because I think this like Bellatar understands the nature of cinematic form, and the film is not lacking for not having those sequences. I don't think it certainly wasn't before I read the, the book, but I think the way that they adapt the way that they. Yeah, certainly they, because the he did it with the author. Yeah, and with Agnes Shiretsky and with the cinematographer, Gabor Medvigi. <laughs> and the set designers, Giula Power and Janosz Brecki. I mean, I feel a lot of this was shot on location. The, the, the manor, the castle, they're all real places. Sure. You can see them on Google Maps. Like This makes it even more grim. When you're reading the book, that is not at the foreground. You're seeing this like horrific, fable-like story played out with real people, with like real, real faces. The casting of this film is unbelievable. He worked with like famous actors like Hannah Shigula and like Tilda Swinton in subsequent films, but I don't know who any of the people are in this film. But in terms of like the nature of screen personas, going back to like silent film and like how faces are used like mrs schmidt for example you've got that like 10 minute zoom on her when she's not even talking she's just listening to all the other characters in the bar yeah you the sense at... of time is inscrutable and it's, i think it's an appropriate time to say that yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the you know the casting of sd irimiash like all these characters even the the cow casting the spider casting is like it's a film that really understands the capabilities and the limits of cinema I think, yeah, I mean, it's a perfect evocation of both the text and the source material of that source material, i.e. the world in which 
both Lajlo, Krishna Hawkeye and Bellatar and all the creatives involved grew up in is perfect. Just one more note as an adaptation then. I feel like I've probably said this loads of times, but I, the interiority contains lost, multitudes. What's lost from the text, the perspectivalism is compensated for cinematographically. Yeah, and through the editing and the representation of time. Yeah. And the synthesis of time. And you're seeing the same time three or four times, but it's a different time, but it's yeah. the same. Let's get to the most interesting way of like constructing time and perspective in this, which is probably like the, what you said earlier, these two scenes set in the like police office. The office, or, like, yeah, 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 for sure. The last one is so jokes, man. You've just got the camera going around the room, like as if it's like you've just walked in, you can't find a seat and they're all really busy, like going through all the records and like reading about these characters we've just spent this time yeah. with. And like various descriptions of them and like sanitizing descriptions of them written by characters where it's like, how can we like rephrase like fat cow or like rant, you know, just like. <laughs> and then they're like all trying to like get home to like yeah. watch, you know, the temporal setting. We haven't talked about this. Mm. I asked you like, when do you think when you read the novel before you watched the film, like, when do you think this is set? Because like conceivably it could be any time between like the 50s and the 90s or whatever yeah. there's a television in one sequence i think and there's a plane yeah. or there's mention of a plane again but, it's like that sort of kafka shit where like even though there are certain like technologies in it like references to televisions or radios in the book there's um like a coca-cola yeah, 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 in the yeah, background yeah. or whatever but I could still, I mean, that does not locate it in time, in time. It locates it in the 20th century, but not like... It's also been referred to as dystopian fiction, which is an interesting way to conceive it. I guess that's like a part of like the communist project or whatever. Puts it more in that stalker canon, deliberate in responses to the glorious USSR and other things also. I think it's less... I didn't call it dystopian fiction, someone else did. Yeah, I think it's less dystopian than... I mean, it's representing, like, a grim reality. It's like the road, though. I don't though, think it's, like, projecting like... into the future. It's not projecting into the future. It's representing the present. Right? Yeah, it's but it's also, like, apocalyptic. It's holding up a mirror. It certainly is apocalyptic. And, like, you know, there is a character, um, Mrs. Halix, like, is, uh, you know... Evangelical. Eschatological, like... like, coming through of, like, the... Telling other people in the bar as they finish their palinka to, uh, you know, read from... The apocalypse. Yeah, read from the apocalypse, not Genesis right. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, chapter two is called "We Are Resurrected." I yeah. Mean, I know I it's mean, like ironic, like Irimi Ash is resurrected from. Yeah, it's both. Yeah, it's both. But there is that mythological slash Christian normative singularity myth thing going on. Yeah, I mean, there are so many interesting contexts in which it can be viewed. So many. And read as, as well, but I mean, we are talking about the film. It's only seven hours of your life for all of this, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, look, it's book in film. episodes. Yeah. You can hypothetically watch, like, if it's a daunting prospect to watch it, consider it. Yeah, like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can break it down. You don't need to binge it, like, binging Satan. <laughs> Let's talk about Bellatar more broadly, I think. Bellator. <laughs> so this is my first Bellator film. It was the Cinema. first one you watched. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. No. I just I knew about it for like the legendary status. When did you first see it? A few years ago. 2015, 16. Yeah. It's five pounds in FOP right now for the triple disc set. You bought it for me very kindly. Yeah. <sighs> Sorry to reveal the price. No, but, I mean no, that's yeah, a bargain. I think, I think the label was on it when you gave it to me. To be fair. But... <laughs> It's still sick, man. Come on. Yeah, of course. It's fantastic. It should be on every shelf. It should be on every shelf. It is like no other film. Having subsequently like got into the work of Krajna Hawkeye and definitely the work of Bellatar, I mean, I love talking about this guy. I think he is probably my favourite filmmaker. Mm. Even though I think The Man from London was a flop. It has like one cool shot in it that he uses like four times. And like Krajna Hawkeye like adapting Georges Simenon is not that interesting and Tilda Swinton whatever I don't know it's worth watching maybe but it was 
extremely disappointing compared to Workmeister Harmonies, for example, reading the Melancholy of Resistance now. And this is a, I hope we do an episode on that like this because that's an even more interesting act of adaptation. Yeah, you were telling me it's quite radically different. That's a two hour film, but it's way more epic than Saiyan Tango is, you know? In that more happens or... Just the scale is way grander. It's about like the universe. The only other one I've seen is Turin Horse, which is like three hours, maybe three hours. At the, the screening at Lelo yeah. that I did with Lauren. That yeah. was great. Shout out Lauren Order, friend of the show. Yeah. Put on the Turin Horse. Again, an extremely oppressive film. Yeah. Has a soundtrack by Mahali Vig the same. Yeah. Very peak. Like I found it on YouTube under a channel called like Depression Loops or something like that. Right, which is right. just peak music. Because it just keeps coming back. Yeah, the Turin Horse is the one that holds the most in common with Satan Tango, which is also why it's admirable that me and Lauren did the screening because watching that in your home is just not the experience. You've got to watch that shit on the big screen. Like, it's excruciating. Even though that, again, is a third of the length of this film, but so much more repetitive and even more limited than this film. Mm. An extremely challenging film. I mean, in theory, it's about the horse, which Nietzsche hugged when he had a breakdown in Turin yeah, but I mean I think in, in a sort of abstract way oh it's an unremittingly bleak it's I, like Trigger Black Beauty the Turin horse was Bellatar and Agnes Hirachki's last film yeah they've since retired Bellatar just teaches now let's hope it's a sabbatical I guess I read a quote by uh, Crash and Hawkeye being like I think it was on like the Wikipedia for his most recent book being like I at first wanted to just write one book I wrote that book and I wasn't satisfied. Yada yada. Yeah. I have now written my fourth book and I am finally done. Right, right. Okay. Maybe it's just the, the Hungarian mentality yeah. or something. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I don't know. I used to be a filmmaker, which is a documentary about Bellatar making the Turin horse. Oh, cool. It was on movie. I think it was on movie in the States, actually. Which is a breathtaking documentary. But again, very reductive. And, you know, it's more like the, uh, I think that's called Voyage in Time the Tarkovsky documentary, not vo- not Voyage in Time, the Terence Malick. But anyway, there's a documentary about Tarkovsky making nostalgia. Yeah, you would love that. When I went to the exhibition in Dam, they were playing that on the screen. Like, it's yeah, just it's like cool, leaving. Right? So I watched yeah. a bit of it, yeah. The documentary. I, mean, yeah. I would definitely recommend, I used to be a filmmaker. I would recommend the work of Bellator. As an introduction to Bellator's work, what was the Turin horse saying? I mean, it's... Bloody hard work, actually. But also, extremely impressive. And it is poetry, you know. It sounds so ridiculous to say. And it's responding to this, like, 20th century European textual and film tradition in, like, a very significant way. For sure. I think the reason I appreciate him so much is because of what he did with and to film form. Mm. I mean, it's pushing the limits, man. Yeah. I watched Peter Lou the other mm-hmm. day mm-hmm. and um, it was making me think of The Commune the Peter Watkins film and so I was like on his website where he has all these like nutty essays and um... <laughs> oh yeah peterwatkins.net or, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's like you know he has this theory of the monoform which is like the like hegemonic way in which we consume like TV film all like content you know there are limits and they you know the the boundaries are defined by where you put the ad break or like, you know, this is so far from that. You <laughs> can't hear me and a half on the fucking mic. hours. Like. Yeah, it's a radical departure. However, I do think like it's in episodes and, you know, I was saying to my mum, like, you would just recommend it. Oh, if you watch mom, it. In, you watch it like you'd watch Casualty, mum. Nice. Try. <laughs> we'll see. It's there, though. Yeah. It's a monumental work. It's available. It's about to become more available. Yeah. I want to see it again in the cinema. I wanted to go see it like again in the cinema at the Lincoln Center when I was in New York. Like, mm. it's so there's nothing else like it. It's not like this is like our taste is like Napoleon, the Commune, Satan Tango. But there's a reason they're worth talking about in terms of pushing form and like using form in the same way that like Lawrence of Arabia is sick to see in the cinema, or Napoleon was really sick to see in the cinema. I think with all of these examples. It's not just their length that defines them as, like... Of course not. Their, their place in the sort of pantheon of cinema. It's the other ways in which they push the boundaries of narrative, presentation, representation. It's a fucking stunning film, Satan Tango. Like, yeah, it sets a really high standard. Like, it sets a standard for reckoning with form, I think. 
especially if you're using that to an emotional extent to portray it like to literally destroy your mind when you're watching i mean the takes are just like cinematographically like is extremely impressive and like on it i mean on a technical level in the same way that napoleon has like the triptych yeah, of screens yeah, yeah, of or the commune has like but this is, more, this is more like, sick it's... for what it doesn't it for the, you know it doesn't really innovate it just uses the elements that we've always had yeah wheels and film yeah and basically until it runs out until it runs out exactly <laughs> satan tango by bellatar one of the best films Five bags of popcorn, spiritual <laughs> sequel to The Hobbit. <laughs> you can eat seven bags of popcorn. 419, 419 <laughs> bags of popcorn. Thanks for being with us on Film Grades for this very special episode about one of the sickest films. Yeah, ever. if you've made it this far, you're a real soldier. If you've made it this far and you haven't seen Satan Tango, Please watch it. Come you know. on. You can borrow it off one of us. Yeah, or... exactly. We'll, we'll do the lending of the novel or the DVD. <laughs> or we can go see it together at the Curzon. <laughs> or I'm probably going to get the Blu-ray. But yeah, if you like fucking good art, if you like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, it's such a good parallel, actually. <laughs> recently discovered. Yeah, it's, it's actually exactly like that. Hanging out in the bar with the miserable, depraved people. Yeah. And finding the joy in that and the art in that. That's what we got. I've really enjoyed talking about this film. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure, man. Honestly, I haven't stopped thinking about it since I read it or slash watched it. It's really permeated my consciousness. Everyone I've spoken to, I've upset with incessant references to it. Yeah, I, did. I probably was the same. I'm really caught in that spider's web, you know? Yeah, the work of the spider. I'm still evangelical about it. I do think it's a pinnacle. The fact that it's on in cinemas right now is just fucking legendary, to be honest. And I'm mm. glad that we have a podcast at this time. I hope we can do a The Melancholy of Resistance versus Workmeister Harmony's episode in the future. Yeah, I'd love to do it. Me too. I guess based on the length, we could probably do all their other collaborations in one episode. That's just spewing the load too quick, you know. <laughs> I think it's funny that, well, it's not funny. It's really deeply, deeply depressing and miserable. But I got to see The Painted Bird recently, a new Czech film. I saw it at the Phoenix in East Finchley, which is a great cinema. It was premiering part of the London Jewish Film Society screenings. It was at the LFF as well. It was really amazing. I mean, don't get too gassed to watch it. It's probably the hardest, most miserable, depressing, deep film I've ever seen. Mm. It reminded me of Satan Tango in terms of having these sequences where the lone boy it's way more like ivan's childhood like survival sort of like just like yeah one kid in this crazy world while the war's going on but um this boy going into these communities where they have no imagination and it's just extremely miserable and scary the world they live in that's also out in cinemas the same week it's a really really hard going film on all fronts but worth seeing that Reminded me more of something like Afrim or Andre Rublev, the films we were like talking about before we mm. did the episode that didn't actually mm. talk about in the episode to illuminate Satan Tango. But, you know. Yeah, it's a shame they didn't come in. But I mean, I guess these are all touchstones that's, that deal with Eastern European or Slavic life. And also like... In just, like a very profound... Just techniques using cinema to punish you from Eisenstein to now. The Painted Bird, though... Eureka releasing it. It'll probably be talked about. I mean, it had so many walkouts when it premiered at Venice. Like, mm. apparently over half. Like, I mean, all the premieres are obviously full at a big film festival like that. But by the end, like, over half the seats were empty. Understandably so. I'm intrigued. I mean, I'm, definite, I'm definitely going to see it in cinema, I think. Yeah. It's the kind of film we like. It's literary. And it's got... I mean, it is a literary adaptation, isn't it? Yeah. Although the literary source is uh, debated. It was initially published as a memoir, but then apparently it was like a patchwork of sources like put together from different like people's experiences growing up yeah. during World War II. Some people also say it was the author's friend, Roman Polanski's experiences growing up. Fuck. Sort of like fictionalised or whatever. So I don't know. 
either way, this film is extremely intense. Three hour widescreen black and white experience. Worth seeing. It's certainly for some. And it's a, you know, it was introduced as like a somber but important and responsible work. And I think it's that like as well a as Jojo the... Rabbit, right? <laughs> like, no, I can't. Can't wait to see the Painted Bird. Any other film stuff that's been going on? There was mm. a, the Oscar. Greg dressed up as the Joker. It was really fire, <laughs> oh, and I, I don't. I think it. on cinema it's like over now or yeah. something. I don't know. But no, they had the Academy Awards. Yeah. yeah. Parasite won, which is great. You still haven't seen it? I still haven't seen it. It hasn't really been screened in the UK that much. It's not on in many cinemas, but I think... I it... saw a tweet from, like, the Kurtz on, like, head of distribution being mm. like, if you want to see it, you better book it. Well, even when I was in New York, like, it was sold out for, like, a week. Like, I couldn't get a ticket to it. It's just playing at Kurtz on, like, every man. Yeah. You know, that's sort the of expensive thing. It's ones. playing at a few Odeons, like, but very select... No, I mean, my local one is the Cineworld. Wouldn't have a bloody sniff of it. Sure, but I think the release is going to open up. It's been such a smash hit, a huge sensation in, like, every country it's come out in. And I think it's going to happen the same in the UK. Maybe we can even get it on Movie Go at some point. I'm looking forward to watching it again. It's a really good movie. I can't wait to watch it. We're going to do the... fucking streamed it ages ago, but... I guess you should, Sam. I guess you should. Yeah. We're going to do the hits from the Bong episode in the near future. Yeah. Talk about all Bong Joon-ho's film. Any other Oscar commentary? We don't really have much to say, do we? <sighs> I don't have anything valuable to say about the Oscars. I'm glad that 1917 didn't win Best Film. Yeah. I mean, it won Best Cinematography. And, I mean, we were earlier discussing, like, the visual relationship between 1917 and Satan Tango because they both have, obviously, like, long takes or whatever they it's definitely a bear comparison similarity but but i mean oscar loves that shit oscar loves the reward <laughs> Birdman won best film you know you want to talk about real good long takes you want to talk about the trial of tim heidecker you know <laughs> Fuck. um okay i yeah we're we're done with the we're done then, aren't we book phil graves we're trying to play some shows yeah we're out here we're we got new songs got new members yeah new abilities Ready to I go, got a new man. pedal. Yeah, oh my god. <laughs> Please subscribe on SoundCloud. Rate us five stars. I've been Emmett. I'm Sam. Lots of love. Yeah, till next time. Hello, you're listening to Film Grays. Today we're <laughs> going to talk about Satan Tangle.